Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. We often see the lives of actors and wish that we had that for ourselves, but it just goes to show that you really need to be careful what you wish for. An actor who had just made his big break makes a rather big mistake. In 1987, Matthew Broderick was riding on the success of his film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, while vacationing in Ireland with his then-secret girlfriend, actress Jennifer Grey, whom he met on the set of the movie. Matthew and Jennifer had rented a red BMW to get around the Irish countryside, and visibility had been good during their travels. But the roads were slick from a brief downpour that covered the area. But Matthew was driving well, according to a police officer who followed the BMW for several miles. But that suddenly changed as Matthew, with Jennifer in the passenger seat, for unknown reasons, crossed into the opposite lane and crashed head-on into a brown Volvo containing two passengers, 30-year-old Anna Gallagher and her mother, 63-year-old Margaret Doherty, both of whom died upon impact. While Jennifer walked away unscathed, Matthew wasn't as lucky. He suffered a broken leg, cracked ribs, in addition to a collapsed lung and a concussion that was bad enough that he had no recollection of the entire day of the crash. Though he recovered, Matthew still faced charges of causing death by dangerous driving, a sentence that would have put him behind bars for five years. However, the court only convicted him of a smaller misdemeanor, for which his only punishment was a $175 fine. The outraged family called the ruling a travesty of justice, even though they held no ill will against the actor, knowing Matthew would have to live with the results of his actions for the rest of his life. The actor says to this day, the crash and the lives lost still haunt him. It's always good to see a victim put their abuser in their rightful place. It was 1965, and Faye DeWitt, an actress who played on Mork and Mindy, held a letter opener tightly in her grasp before viciously attacking her ex-husband, a playwright named Ray Allen, and stabbing him repeatedly. Her husband was overwhelmed by the assault and succumbed to his injuries, and just like that, Faye was in the spotlight again, but this time for murdering her ex-husband. Faye's career may have ended right there, had it not been discovered that Ray had actually broken into her home and began assaulting her. This uncovered years of terrible abuse that Ray inflicted on Faye, and Faye wasn't going to take it anymore. Fortunately, she came out on top and continues her acting career today. Nothing enhances a person's character better than real-life experience. An actress, an author, and a rapper, Felicia Pearson has seen a lot in her life. Felicia's acting career is most notable for her part in The Wire, but crime was something she was more personally familiar with. Before she was even a teenager, she began selling drugs, which was obviously a path that just led to more and more trouble. In 1995, when Felicia was only 14, she got into a fight with a 15-year-old girl who was armed with an aluminum baseball bat. Felicia claimed the girl attempted to beat her with the bat, 
and for this, Felicia withdrew a gun and shot the girl dead. Felicia was charged with second-degree murder and sentenced to two consecutive eight-year prison terms. She was released after six and a half years. Unfortunately, in 2011, Felicia was involved in another drug-related crime, but has said she wishes to move on from a life of criminal activity. Temptation is at times a stepping stone to destruction. American actor Lane Garrison, who is mostly recognized for playing the role of inmate tweener on Prison Break, has been no stranger to prison, even from Offset. On December 2nd, 2006, Lane, who was 26 at the time, was out grocery shopping in Beverly Hills when he met three teenagers. Two 15-year-old girls named Michelle Ohana and Chen Sagi, and 17-year-old Von Sedian. After bragging about his status as a Hollywood actor, the teens invited Lane to a high school party, and Lane not only agreed to attend, but offered to buy alcohol and even drive them to the gathering. While at the party, Lane partook in cocaine and drank until his blood alcohol level was .2, over twice the legal limit. Eager to continue the festivities, he offered to drive the teens back to the store to purchase more alcohol, and when they asked if he was safe to drive, he assured them they would all be well. Lane and the three teenagers got back into his SUV, only they never made it back to the store, and one of them would never return home at all. Under the influence of multiple substances, Lane crashed his car into a tree on South Beverly Drive, severely injuring the two girls and killing Vaughn. Lane pled guilty to vehicular manslaughter, but was only charged with a three-and-a-half-year sentence, less than half the maximum sentence. He was also forced to pay over $300,000 to the families of the teenagers, but no amount of money could undo the death of Vaughn, and his family and classmates mourned their loss. Lane was released from prison in 2009 after serving just two years, but said in a tearful apology that the remorse and guilt he feels is genuine, and that he's felt it every day since. Some people only play good guys on TV. Michael Jace would be easily recognized by fans of The Shield, where he played a Los Angeles police officer. Michael often played an individual who was responsible for keeping people safe, but his true character betrayed that role. Michael had been married to April Jace for 11 years. April was an avid runner and had won many competitions. The two had two sons together, but eventually Michael began to grow suspicious that April was no longer being faithful to their marriage. On May 19, 2014, police arrived at Michael's Los Angeles home after receiving a report of domestic violence and a call from Michael himself saying he shot his wife. When police entered his home, they found April dead from multiple gunshot wounds. Michael had shot her in the back and then in the legs, specifically to destroy her greatest passion in life, running. Both of their sons witnessed the murder, one of them recalling that Michael said, You like to run so much, why don't you try running to heaven before shooting her? Michael was sentenced on June 10, 2016 to 40 years to life for the murder of April Jace. Sometimes a person still needs to pay, even if the event was a complete accident. 
Rebecca Gayhart is not only an actress, but a model who has a bit of experience in the darker side of the screen, having played parts in Scream 2, Vanished, and Nip Tuck, to name a few. It was no secret that Rebecca was hardworking and on her way to a successful acting career, but on June 13, 2001, Rebecca had an experience that would change a number of lives, never mind her own. While driving her car through Los Angeles, a nine-year-old boy walked across the street and right into Rebecca's path. Unfortunately, she was unable to stop in time, and she struck the young boy, who died of his injuries the following day. Rebecca pled no contest to vehicular manslaughter and was sentenced to three years of probation, along with a suspended license, a fine, and 750 hours of community service. Rebecca feels great remorse for the horrible accident and said she would carry the events from that day with her for the rest of her life. But has done well at continuing her career. Proof that the hardest points in life shape us into who we become. Charles S. Dutton was not only a producer of HBO's The Corner, but both a television and screen actor known mostly for his role in Rudy and Alien 3, with smaller parts in many other films over the years. But life hasn't always been smooth sailing for the actor, especially in his youth. At the age of 17 in Baltimore, Maryland, Charles decided to drop his education in favor of chasing his dreams of becoming a boxer. However, he got into a fight with a young man and stabbed him, mortally wounding him. Charles contested that the violent act had been one of self-defense, but he was found guilty of manslaughter and was sentenced to seven years behind bars. He served out his full seven years and was released, the weight of his actions still heavy on his shoulders. But Charles credits his time behind bars for turning his life around, saying in an interview that if he hadn't served time, he would have either been dead or strung out on alcohol and drugs and never discovered his love for acting, a dream he still pursues to this day. Many people enjoy a nice mixed drink, but there's plenty of things that those drinks don't mix with. Amy Locaine hasn't done too much acting, but she did have a role playing Sandy Harling in the first season of Melrose Place, a well-known soap opera in 1992. She also played love interest to Johnny Depp in the 1990 cult classic Cry Baby, among other roles in other productions. In 2006, Amy retired from acting on screen after getting engaged and in 2008 was married. Things seemed great from the outside, but on June 27, 2010, Amy had been drinking and was out driving. As an elderly couple were turning into their driveway, returning home after spending time out of the house, Amy collided into their car, severely injuring the man and killing his wife. It was discovered that Amy's blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit at the time. For this, she was eventually sentenced to three years in prison. She was released on parole on June 12, 2015. A horrific on-set accident with an actor who had no idea he was about to end someone's life. Michael Massey, an actor known for playing the gentleman in the recent The Amazing Spider-Man, was first recognized in the 1994 cult hit The Crow, where he played the villain opposite the hero, played by Brandon Lee, the son of legendary martial artist and actor Bruce Lee. But Brandon dreamt of paving his own way in Hollywood, and The Crow was shaping up to skyrocket him to A-list status. Unfortunately, that all changed during the filming of a pivotal scene in which Brandon's character was to be shot with a 44 cal 
caliber revolver. During the shoot, the prop crew was under serious time constraints and placed a blank round in the barrel of the gun, not realizing the lead tip of a previous dummy round was still lodged inside. The gun was handed to Michael Massey and the scene played out just as rehearsed until the shot was fired at Brandon, sending the lead tip straight into his abdomen where it severed an artery. Brandon was rushed to the hospital, but after six hours of intensive surgery, he finally succumbed to his injuries. The death was ruled accidental, and Brandon's family and the crew mourned their loss, but went on to complete and release the film in his honor, so he would forever be immortalized in film as he always had dreamed. Still, 20 years later, Michael, who pulled the trigger, struggles with the events of that fateful day, saying, I don't think you ever get over something like that. He has never watched the film and still refuses to. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. A story that goes to show the importance of mental health. Johnny Lewis was 28 years old and well on his way into his acting career. He was perhaps best known for playing half-sack Epps in the first two seasons of Sons of Anarchy. Johnny had a troubling past having been involved in drugs and had been arrested three times between 2011 and 2012 for outbursts of violence and attempting to break into a person's house. In 2011, Johnny suffered head injuries from a motorcycle accident but showed a great aversion to psychiatric treatment. On September 26, 2012, Johnny broke into the Los Angeles home of his 81-year-old landlord, Catherine Davis. He entered her bedroom where she was and began beating her before eventually strangling her to death. He then violently attacked Catherine's cat before killing and dismembering it. Johnny eventually ended up on the roof of Catherine's garage and fell off and died on the pavement of her driveway. The coroner ruled Johnny's death as accidental and claimed that all tests indicated Johnny had no drugs or alcohol in his system at the time of the murder. And to this day, his motive remains unknown. For some, movies are an escape from reality. For others, they're an inspiration for murder. Scream, a movie of murderous bloodlust by an assailant in a hauntingly sinister mask. Scream made its debut in 1996. Directed by Wes Craven, it stands today as one of the most memorable slasher films of all time. One man named Teary, however, found great inspiration in the movie and, like many normal people, purchased a Scream killer costume. The movie's success had made it into a very desirable costume to wear on Halloween, but it would come to pass that Teary's purposes for the outfit went far beyond a mere scare. 
Thierry was a 24-year-old single, lonely Belgian truck driver who was interested in a 15-year-old girl. The girl, named Allison, dropped by Thierry's apartment for a visit. Eventually, Thierry began trying to make sexual advances on Allison, but she refused him. Pretending to accept the denial, he excused himself from the room. It was here that he adorned the famous mask and robe and approached her from behind. Thierry stabbed her around 30 times, so much so that her left side was entirely torn open. After she was dead, he placed her on his bed and slipped a rose into her hand before phoning his father to confess to what he had done. Thierry later confessed to police that the murder was in fact premeditated. He had planned for it all along. However, he had no criminal record and no history of mental illness. Nobody saw the murder coming. There are few movies more wholesome than The Ten Commandments, but that doesn't mean it can't inspire murder. Heinrich Pomerenke was born and lived in Germany and was a troubled man who experienced intense sexual addiction at a very early age, claiming that he had his first sexual experience at the age of 10 years old. This addiction burdened him, and he eventually transformed into a feared serial rapist, stalking women as they left buildings and aggressively assaulting them. But Heinrich would always remember the day he visited the theater to watch the Ten Commandments. Though his crimes were sure to evolve on their own, he openly admitted that the evolution occurred as a direct result to a scene from the movie. A scene of women dancing set something off in Heinrich's mind. As the women danced around the golden calf, Heinrich recalled his experience by saying, I saw women dancing around the golden calf and I thought they were a fickle lot. I knew I would have to kill. And he kept his word in the most brutal way he could. Upon leaving the theater, Heinrich immediately went and purchased himself a razor. Now, he would not only rape his victims, but slit their throats as well. His terror claimed the lives of at least four women, though it's believed he murdered more and attempted to murder even more than that. Eventually, he was captured when he left a suitcase at a dry cleaner's and mistakenly left a gun inside. This led to an arrest and then to a confession to his murders. Sentenced to multiple life sentences, Heinrich will go down in history always remembered as the Beast of Black Forest. A movie that has inspired more deaths than it probably featured. Natural Born Killers is one of the more brutal movies in history. It's well known that the Columbine High School Massacre shooters had a love for the movie Natural Born Killers, but in one case in particular, it was a direct inspiration for a horrific series of murders. Jasmine Richardson was only 12 years old when she started dating the much older Jeremy Stainkey, who was 23 years old. Jasmine's parents, of course, forbade Jasmine from seeing Jeremy. However, she was in love. So the two developed a sinister plan on how they could spend the rest of their lives together. As long as Jasmine's parents were in the picture, she couldn't be with her lover, so they'd have to do away with them. Jeremy, who believed he was a 300-year-old werewolf and often wore a vial of blood around his neck, 
kicked back and turned on natural-born killers with some friends shortly before the murders. The movie tells the story of Bonnie and Clyde-type lovers who traversed the country on a killing spree. Jeremy was overwhelmed with inspiration. Jeremy and Jasmine came together one Sunday morning and launched their attack. They viciously attacked Jasmine's parents with knives. Jasmine's mother was stabbed 12 times and left lifeless at the bottom of the basement stairs. Jasmine's father put up more of a fight, leaving his blood in multiple areas of the house, but he was eventually overcome and had been stabbed so many times in the face, chest, and crotch that his body barely had any blood left in it. From there, Jeremy and Jasmine entered the bedroom of Jasmine's eight-year-old brother, where they slit his throat while he lied in bed. Then the two took off together, however, they were quickly apprehended, thankfully before they could kill again. Jeremy spoke with an undercover officer and said to him, Have you ever seen the movie Natural Born Killers? I think that's the best love story of all time. Jasmine, due to her age, was sentenced to 10 years in prison, while Jeremy was put in prison for three life sentences. Most of us have favorite movies to watch. They make us feel something special that other movies just don't. But the question is whether or not your mind can keep reality on one side of the screen and fantasy on the other. Tragedies are performed on stage all the time, but not all of them are scripted. Even in the wake of tragedy, the show sometimes must go on. Tommy Cooper was a well-respected magician and one of the most internationally recognized comedians in the 1970s, but it hadn't started out that way. Following seven years in the military, it wasn't until he booked his first television gig in 1948 that his popularity soared, but his newfound fame came at a price. The attention cursed him with stage fright, and he tried to drink away the anxiety and smoked as many as 40 cigars a day. His vices began affecting his personal and professional life, as well as his health. On April 15, 1984, Tommy was halfway through his act on a broadcast variety show called Live from Her Majesty's when he collapsed to the ground. Everyone in the theater was convinced it was part of the act, and laughter spread throughout the room, but as the seconds passed, it became clear that something was very wrong. The director cued the cameras to go to a commercial break while several staff dragged Tommy behind the curtain. As staff tried to revive Tommy in the dark just behind the curtain, the show went on before help finally arrived during the second commercial break. Tommy was taken to Westminster Hospital by rescuers, but it was too late and he was pronounced dead upon arrival. Though the comedian had died, he continued even after death to be honored by all those he had influenced. Acrobatic stunts pose an incredible risk, even for those with decades of experience. Cirque du Soleil is known for its incredible visuals and highly skilled acrobatic performers, which included 31-year-old Sarah Gaillard-Guillot, nicknamed Sassoun. Sarah was a French aerialist who had over 20 years of acrobatic experience. She had been with Cirque show Ka since its inception, and while there, she formed a familial kinship and trust with fellow performers. Unfortunately for Sarah, on June 29, 2013, her performance in Las Vegas would be anything but routine. In the final sequence of the show, the stage was turned vertical while aerialists were suspended 
erected 94 feet above a pit attached only by a cable and a safety harness. Sarah ascended to the top of the theater but pulled up too rapidly and collided with the bottom of the catwalk situated above the stage. The force knocked the cable loose from its pulley wheel and the cord severed and Sarah fell 94 feet into the pit below. At first, the audience thought it was all part of the scene, but hastily called for help when they heard her moaning in pain from below. Rescue arrived quickly, but Sarah died at 11.43 p.m. on the way to the hospital. Her death was the first in Cirque du Soleil's 29-year history, and she was survived by her two children and her fellow performers who considered her to be family. Sometimes the journey to success can be cut short rather tragically. Les Harvey and his older brother Alex always dreamed of becoming musicians, but the path would not be easy. The brothers were involved with several less successful musical acts before being introduced to singer Maggie Bell, who fit Les and Alex's musical style perfectly. In 1969, they formed the blues rock band Stone the Crows and were managed under Peter Grant, most known for representing Led Zeppelin. From 1969 to 1972, Stone the Crows released three albums and quickly gained traction attracting the attention of the rock community. Unfortunately, as everything seemed to fall into place, it also began to fall apart. On May 3rd, 1972, the band was running through a sound check on stage before they were to perform in Swansea, Wales. Everything was going smoothly until Les touched an ungrounded microphone with wet hands. High voltage electricity coursed through his body and a stagehand attempted to unplug the amplifier, but the damage was already done and Les was killed instantly. Les Harvey was only 27 at the time of his death and while Stone the Crows tried to soldier on without their lead guitarist, they ultimately disbanded just a year later in 1973. A night of music and celebration turns hellish. In 2015, the Romanian metalcore band Goodbye to Gravity wanted to celebrate the release of their new album, Mantras of War, with a free concert. They booked a show at Collective, a nightclub located in Bucharest, Romania. On October 30th, hundreds of excited fans filled the venue and everyone was enjoying the music, but shortly into the band's set, things went terribly wrong. The theatrical pyrotechnic sparklers went off and the acoustic foam on a nearby pillar caught fire. At first, the audience thought it must be part of the theatrics, but as the blaze spread to the ceiling, they realized the danger that they were in. Panic ensued as everyone in the club ran for the only exit, many being trampled in their attempt to escape the building, now filling with flames and toxic smoke. Emergency workers arrived at Collective to the nightmarish sight of victims with full-body burns screaming and crying. The fire led to the injury of 147 people and the death of 64. Vocalist Andre Galut was the only surviving member of Goodbye to Gravity, but he didn't make it out unscathed. He suffered burns to over 45% of his body. During the investigation, officials discovered signs that fire safety regulations had been ignored that night, and on November 2nd, three of the club's owners were arrested and charged with negligent homicide, bodily harm, and destruction. Following the fire, Romanian officials declared three days of national mourning for all those that were lost. Some performers go to great lengths to entertain their audience, sometimes dancing with death itself. 
In the village of Karawang, Indonesia, Irma Buell was one of many Dangdut singers, a genre of pop Indonesian folk music. While not known nationally, Irma always attracted large numbers of locals for her performances, where she was known for dancing with snakes. While many of the serpents were defanged or had their mouths duct taped shut during performances, one mistake was all it took for things to turn deadly. During a show on April 4th, 2016, Irma picked up a king cobra and accidentally stepped on its tail. King cobras normally avoid humans but become vicious when cornered. This particular snake still had fangs in its mouth had not been properly bound before the show. The serpent latched onto Irma's thigh and a handler quickly rushed to her side to pry its fangs from her leg, but the cobra's venom had already entered Irma's bloodstream. Despite the handler's advice, Irma remained on stage and continued playing for 45 minutes, at one point even refusing antidote. Then things took a turn for the worse and she suddenly collapsed on stage, vomited and started to seize. Rescue arrived and transported her to a local hospital, but the venomous bite had wreaked havoc on her body, and she died not long after. The police are currently investigating the circumstances surrounding her death. She is survived by her husband and three children. In show business, it can be quite difficult to determine whether someone's acting or not. Dick Sean was an American comedian and actor who was successful throughout his career, doing everything from stand-up routines at nightclubs to television appearances. He was able to combine dramatic and insightful characters with comedic elements, but he was also known for his stage antics. On April 17, 1987, while performing in front of an audience of 500 people at the University of California, San Diego, Dick was in the middle of telling a joke about the end of the world when he suddenly collapsed, clutching his chest. The audience clapped for five minutes, believing it to be part of the act. Some even shouted, take his wallet. However, Dick's son Adam, who was in the audience, called for help, realizing his father wasn't acting. The audience was asked to leave, but most remained until paramedics arrived, still assuming it was all a ruse. Dick was rushed to a local hospital where doctors attempted to resuscitate him, but with no luck, and he was pronounced dead. He was buried in Culver City, California, and was survived by four children. A man with a promising future ahead of him silenced by the violence he sang about. Brazilian funk artist and rapper MC Deles was born Daniel Pellegrin in Sao Paulo, Brazil and began his career in 2009. By the time he was just 20 years old, he brought in almost $85,000 a month just from rapping, but he also became involved in ostentation funk, a music style featuring lyrics that represented the singer's life, often one of poverty, urban crime, corrupt police forces, drugs, and death. Unfortunately, such lyrics would become a tragic Tragic reality. MC Deles was performing in front of a crowd of 3,000 on July 6, 2013. Audience members filmed the performance hoping to capture positive memories, but instead captured a horrific crime. In the middle of a song, two gunshots rang out. The first just grazed Deles, but the second struck him in the abdomen and knocked him back onto the ground. He was rushed to a hospital, but his injuries were far too extensive, and he died later that day. Law enforcement is still currently investigating Deleste's murder. Doctors don't know everything, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to them. 
Growing up in New York City, Herbert Corey, later known as Tiny Tim, could often be found by the radio listening to singers and dreaming of one day becoming a performer himself. But before he was a sensation, Tim, a high school dropout, took on menial jobs and performed as a freak act before earning his first paid show. Soon he was playing at famous venues and booking television shows and even film appearances. Tiny Tim's rendition of Tiptoe Through the Tulips propelled him to commercial success in 1960. It seemed in the age of acid rock, the man with the ukulele was the one in the limelight, until the fame began to fade. As his success dwindled, so did his health. On September 28, 1996, Tim performed at Montague Common Hall in western Massachusetts, suffering a heart attack just as the show began. He was released after three weeks in the hospital, but his doctors warned him not to perform again due to his diabetic problems and heart condition. Tiny Tim ignored the advice of professionals and played a show at the Woman's Club of Minneapolis on November 30th that same year. He was in the middle of playing his hit Tiptoe Through the Tulips when he collapsed on stage. His third wife, Susan Corey, remained by his side as he was rushed to the hospital where he would pass away from cardiac arrest. He was survived by his wife and daughter by first marriage, whom he named Tulip Victoria. Entertainers perform for an audience, however, sometimes it's the audience that poses the greatest risk. At the height of metal music in the 80s and 90s, Pantera was a name that couldn't be ignored, but the band ultimately parted ways in 2003. Afterwards, former members Vinnie Paul and Daryl Dimebag Abbott went on to form their next musical act, Damage Plan. On December 8, 2004, the new band was scheduled to play a show in Columbus, Ohio. A crowd gathered inside to watch the opening acts, all except for a man named Nathan Gale. Nathan, a former Marine and troubled schizophrenic, stood outside until Damage Plan began playing their set. He then entered the club, made his way on stage, and pulled out a 9mm Beretta pistol. Before anyone realized the danger at hand, Nathan crossed the stage and shot guitarist Daryl Abbott three times in the head. Most of the audience thought it was just a stunt until the gunman continued firing and this time into the crowd. Head of security Jeff Mayhem Thompson died tackling Nathan to the ground as he fired off another shot. Nathan then took a hostage and peppered the audience with gunfire, injuring several more people. A police officer was the first responder to arrive, but instead of waiting for backup, he rushed inside brandishing a 12-gauge shotgun. The officer crossed towards Nathan from the back of the stage where he saw him holding a gun to the hostage's head. The officer fired once from 20 feet away and killed Nathan instantly. Even though the gunfire had stopped, the nightmare was not over for those closest to Daryl Abbott, who died from his injuries. The metal and rock community mourned the loss of one of their own, and friends and family grieved the man they knew. Daryl was buried in Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. Fire is one of those things that can be incredibly entertaining and incredibly deadly at the same time. American rock group Great White gained widespread popularity in the 80s and early 90s, most notably for their hit song, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. As the years went on and the fame faded, the band continued making music and playing shows. One such show took place on February 20th, 2003 in West Warwick, Rhode Island at a local club known as The Station. The nightclub was packed with people eager to enjoy a night of drinks and music. Great White began playing their first song of the night when their tour manager activated the pyrotechnics from off stage. Sparks shot 15 feet into the air on either side of the platform, a light show indeed, but also 
a disaster waiting to happen. A cameraman for WPRI-TV caught the incident on film, including the moment when the acoustic foam catches fire. But clubgoers quickly realized it wasn't part of the act when the fire alarm started going off. Everyone in the station frantically rushed towards the front entrance, trying to evacuate the way they'd entered, despite there being four other exits. Pushing past one another, the terrified crowd breathed in toxic fumes as the building filled with overwhelming heat and smoke. But the narrow hall leading to the front door was too small for the dozens of people trying to escape, leaving them trapped at the entrance. The fire department arrived in five minutes, but the building was completely engulfed in just six. The station entirely went up in smoke. The fire ultimately caused the death of 100 people, leaving 230 injured and only 132 escaped unscathed, though the memory would haunt many of them for the rest of their lives. Among the dead was great white guitarist Ty Longley, who was believed to have escaped the building initially, but ran back inside for his guitar and never came back out. Following the fire, thousands gathered to attend a memorial service for the victims and to mourn the loss of loved ones. Family members still pay their respects to those they lost where the station once stood, and there are plans to make it a permanent memorial honoring those who died in the fire. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute... It's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.